and welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Henry Jukes, the experimentation architect at Split Software, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Jeffrey Groman. How are you doing today, Jeff? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Henry? Doing really well. And I'm excited to introduce our guest this week, another Jeff, Jeff Smith. Jeff is the director of operations at Centro and the author of Operations Anti-Patterns and DevOps Solutions. Jeff, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Software is at the core of innovation for nearly every company in the world. While software drives innovation, almost all software delivery is powered by DevOps. Release fast, secure your software packages, and distribute all the way to the edge with the JFrog platform. It's universal hybrid DevOps for your universal hybrid digital world. Use the JFrog platform for free on all major clouds at jfrog.co slash adventures. That's jfrog.co slash adventures. If you take the Docker challenge, you'll get a free t-shirt. So Jeff, your book is full of practical ways to implement good DevOps practices within our teams, especially in the case where one might not have the flexibility to make sweeping organizational changes. What inspired you to write it? So it's funny, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the DevOps space and, you know, I love a good blog article, but I was kind of getting annoyed reading the solutions that were designed for the Netflixes, the Googles, the Apples, all these large organizations. And I, I thought to myself, man, there are so many people that are just, you know, sitting there thinking like, I wonder if my backups are recoverable, right? <laughs> so the idea that, you know, everyone was throwing out these super advanced ideas and topics just sort of graded on me. So I said, you know, I, I kind of want to write a DevOps book for everybody else, right? For those of us that are dealing with, you know, people issues, you know, basic communication issues. And I really wanted something that was going to be applicable to most people. So I knew it wouldn't be, you know, potentially the sexiest book out there. But at the same time, I thought it was going to be extremely beneficial to a large audience. So that was really the, the sort of genesis or the idea behind the book and how it came about. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk with people all the time where, you know, there's this group of, uh, you know, as you say, the, the Googles, the Netflixes, the people that have been, you know, pioneering developer operations practices and cultures. But there's so many other organizations that are just in the process of like, what is DevOps and how do I implement it? What, what does it mean for our company to, to be doing this? I guess in this, this is a, a common question we ask a lot of guests because it is defined in so many different ways. What does DevOps mean to you? So for me, DevOps is about, is about working together in an efficient way with a common set of goals to deliver on your business objectives. It's not about tools, right? Although tools play a part of it. It's really about how do we interact? How do we work together? And really, I think the linchpin is how do we create a set of shared goals and incentives so that we're working together, not necessarily working against each other? Because there's so many folks that are in organizations that they don't realize it, but they've set up competing incentives for teams. And as a result, the friction that they feel, the bad blood between dev and ops is really just a manifestation of those competing incentives. So it's really about, you know, trying to organize your work in such a way and structure your work in such a way so that you're all marching towards the same goals. And it sounds like something that's a problem for management, but, you know, I've had success in my career sort of managing up, if you will, and, and influencing how these sorts of goals can be structured, even without being in management. 
So I'm curious, like, you know, if, if you were to, you know, I guess get thrown into, you know, or thrown in front of like a, a small company or medium-sized company, whatever. I mean, I don't think size really makes that big of a difference, right? But, you know, a company that sort of like, you know, maybe has some legacy IT stuff and they're, and they're trying to figure out how do we sort of push the needle forward? Like, you know, you just mentioned a few things and I love it. I, I, I totally agree with the idea of like, you know, you didn't say silos and turf wars, but that's how I, that's what I read uh, yeah. in, your, in your comments. You know, is that where you would start or, you know, where would you, like, what, what would be the first thing that you would say to say, like, if you want to just sort of boil it down into one thing, like, hey, here's the first two things you need to do to hit the ground running. What, what would those be? So the first thing I honestly would do is to make sure I have a good handle on all of the work that's happening. It's amazing how many teams really don't even have an accurate inventory of all the things that are going on. So creating that inventory, I think, is huge because it really helps shape the conversation in terms of, you know, what sort of capacity you have available. So it's kind of like the old the airline analogy, right? Like you put your mask on first before you help the person next to you. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? You're like, okay, I need to understand what work I'm doing before I go around telling everyone how I'm going to help and save them. You, you know, it's interesting you see that because I know I, I think you're 100% right. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you, I, I do a lot of consulting work. I do, uh, I, I'm a cybersecurity type person. So I, I'm constantly in front of clients and seeing different IT shops and, you know, sort of interacting between security and, and IT. And I totally agree with that. I mean, it's it's interesting to me when I see all these different things that are going on and half the time managers and directors and such have no idea what their people are doing and where their time is being sucked into. Why do you think that is? Like, is, is it a problem that we just don't have good tools to sort of project manage? Is it because we don't manage projects well? Is it because we don't manage our time well? Like, what what's the root of that? I think there's a few things. I think one, you know, going back to an old agile process, I don't think we limit the amount of work in process at any one time, right? So yeah. when you're constantly intaking work, you know, you're always going to have these balls that are half in the air, right? They're half finished, half baked. And all of that takes energy. It takes time. It takes context switching and it slows everything else down. It feels like you're multitasking, but you're really not, right? So that's part of it. I think the other part is this idea that we're not particularly good at prioritizing things as organizations, right? And we want to you know, we want to we want to create all these different sets of priorities. Well, these are the customer priorities, and these are the business priorities, and these are the infrastructure priorities. But if it's the same pool of resources, that 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 doesn't work, right? It's like I need to have a priority list, and I need to be able to compare priorities across one another. So I think that's a major falling. So what ends up happening is people are working on these multiple priorities, and they're constantly oscillating between priority one, priority two, P1 for this other silo, and nothing gets done. Everything stays in this sort of stagnant state. And once you're in that state, it's really hard to get out of it, because then you have your truly unplanned work, right? The incidents, the, yeah. the you know, end of life, patch that you've got to roll out or whatever, right? There's all of these things that pop up that truly do have to be handled immediately and are RP1s and that muddies the waters quite a bit. So I, I think it's sort of a combination of all those things mixing together. 
the operations team at Split actually has a way of tracking specifically unplanned work as one of their tags. And I think in a given quarter, something like 40 to 50% of their work will fall into that unplanned category. So finding ways to plan for the unplanned and schedule that appropriately, you know. So it's funny that you mentioned that because I, you know, I talk about unplanned work a little bit in the book. And that was one of the things that we did at Centro was I, I see all of these requests coming in. And I say, all right, how are we going to do this? How are we going to categorize this work? And, you know, people always want these big, nasty systems to, to sort of manage this stuff. It's like, oh, it's so difficult to do. My simple approach was I'm going to set up a filter that looks for all tickets that were created in the last two weeks or whatever that don't have a label of planned or unplanned. And I would just review those tickets and I would add the label. And then at the end of the week, I would run a report. And what I would find is there would be these clusters of tickets of unplanned work that really had the same root cause. One of the common things that we had was we had a lot of unplanned work around ad hoc script execution, right? And it was something like, you know, 60% of the unplanned work. And I said, what value as a team are we adding to this process? Because what happens is development writes it, right? And then they have to give it to us and then we blindly execute it. And then we blindly copy and paste the results and send it back to the developer. Sometimes we'll make sure that it gets approved, but you know, the approval is really asking a developer to make sure it's okay. So I said, why are we in this process? Why are we even involved in this? How do we remove and extricate ourselves from this? So we built a workflow built around JIRA, built around approvals and said, hey, if you guys follow this format, you can execute your own scripts without involving us. Not only did that empower development to work faster, it took a lot of work off of our plate so that we could do more interesting things rather than copy and pasting you know, output back and forth where we're adding absolutely zero value. So I 100% support this idea of knowing where your unplanned work is coming from, uh, categorizing it, and then trying to attack it and ask yourself truthfully, like, do am I adding value to this process? Or am I just sort of senseless gatekeeper? Yeah, that sounds like uh, one of the anti-patterns you talk about in kind of one of the first chapters in the book about that paternalist syndrome. And, you know, I think there is that component of you know, the natural gatekeeping that comes from like, oh, well, it's just the way that we do things. But I also think there's a cultural component too. I'd love for you to kind of expand on, well, kind of how are you thinking of that paternalist syndrome and and how would you recommend teams kind of work to avoid that within their their day-to-day? Yeah, so with the paternalist syndrome, it's one of the first anti-patterns in the book. And it's this idea that, you know, no one cares about production the way operations does, right? And that's just not true. No one comes to work thinking I'm going to take down the system today and it's going to be so much fun, right? <laughs> right? Everyone has production's best interests at heart. So the paternalist syndrome sort of evolves out of this state. One, when you're coming from an area where you're the paternalist because you guys have the keys to the kingdom. You're the only one that actually has access. So sometimes the mater- paternalist syndrome is really masquerading as, a, as really an access problem. But then you also need to make sure that people can do things safely. And we tend to put the onus on the person instead of the process, right? There is nothing that says that my team can't make the same mistake that an engineer would make, right? We count on experience, right? We count on, you know, comfortability working in production systems, but it it can be so easy to have a bad day and execute the wrong command in the wrong window. I think probably everyone has done that at least once in their lives. So if my expertise isn't the thing that's saving us, then what is it? It's like, how do we build processes around these activities 
so that we can offload or codify the expertise that we think we're bringing to the table. So part of that is repetition, right? We're, we're counting on our intuition to be able to do a thing. But if we have a process that's structured appropriately, we can verify that the process is, is, is in control, right? Is meeting the expectations that we set forth, that we've defined, and then just automate that. And we always put this on and on like, well, what about all these weird, crazy use cases? Well, in reality, those crazy use cases aren't caught by humans either, right? They get executed and then someone says, oh, we better not do that again. But then what's the difference? If you're doing it manually, Bob has to remember not to do that again, right? Whereas if I'm doing it through automation, I can codify that test case, that use case, and I can make sure that the code is executing every time to make sure that scenario doesn't happen. So I think it's a matter of examining what it is that you're trying to protect and and sort of like relieving yourself of this idea that only a human could do it. As a human, you can codify what it is that you're trying to do into a script, into a code. You can export that knowledge, but then the knowledge becomes useful in so many other places because now that expertise is portable. So team A can use it. The data science team can use it. The data, the security team can use it, right? And that's where we get value when teams can export their expertise. Jeff, you said you were in security, right? The thing that you would prefer to do is to be able to have something that every team can execute and it will tell them, hey, here are your security violations, as opposed to having to spend 45 minutes a day with you on a pull request where you're pointing out, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, exactly. Get, get that information into the hands of the folks that can take action on it right away. You don't, you know, you, you know, one other thing I, I think you didn't hit on, I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts on it, that, that sort of paternalism, you know, I, I see this a lot in environments where it's like this, there's like this uh, sort of punitive culture that's come around where everyone feels like they need to get approvals before something can happen. Like, who's going to approve that? You know, I, I could give that to you. I could do that for you. I've got the permissions, but who's going to approve it? And so you you end up having this, all this whip because everyone's sort of waiting around because everyone's sort of figure out, well, well, wait a second here. How, how do we get the, actually get this done? Who is actually the right person who's actually going to say, yes, you can go ahead and do and, and I think, you know, like change management and cabs and stuff like that and release management of, have come around from that same sort of mindset. And I and I kind of feel like that's got to be one of the cultural things we got to sort of get rid of. But I'm curious to hear your, you know, your, your point of view on that. Yeah. So, you know, when I talk with companies and even in the organizations that I've been in, when we when we start talking about that approval process, there is always some long legend about where the approval process came from, right? And it's just sort of sacrosanct. It's like, that that's just the way it is. But when you yeah. dig into the legend, you realize like, okay, this this thing is a, a little flimsy, right? So, you know, audit is, is usually like the biggest defense that people use. Oh, we need it for audit purposes. That's why we have to do X, Y, Z. But you know what an audit cares about? You define what your process is. You do the process. You prove that you did the process, yeah. right? That's all they really care about. So if you are saying that you need 15 approvals and DNA swabs, then yeah, the audit's going to ask for that. But if the audit, if your process says someone's going to approve a PR and when that PR gets merged, it gets deployed, that's all the auditors care about. Are you following that? Are those checks and balances happening? So, you know, I think part of that, you know, the approval mythos is getting to the heart of what it is we're exactly protecting against. Is it is it scheduling conflicts, right? Because that's a thing. Well, we need someone to approve it because we want to make sure that whoever does it knows what's going on in the environment and there's no conflict there. Okay, 
still ways we can code around that that's probably more efficient than a human being, right? Global schedulers is a great thing, right? <laughs> uh, where you've got all types of mutexes and, and, and locking schemes and things like that. So it's really about getting to the heart of what it is that you're trying to protect with the approval process and then you know being systematic on how you break that out. In my experience, one of the, the problems that I, I see constantly is that the level at which the approvals often happen are intention focused you know it's like oh what are you trying to accomplish with this thing that you want to do oh that makes sense and very very rarely is someone's intention something that's like malicious or stupid or like you know something that that someone would not approve but it's you know the the place where the risk lies is in that implementation and like the specific details and usually the the de those details are often something that's obfuscated by the approval process. Someone does, you know, the, the person that's high up enough to, to be able to give that thumbs up doesn't have the time to review exactly the migration that's being performed or the steps you plan on taking. And though that is exactly where, you know, you see the bugs, you see the failures, you see the incidents uh, stem from. As we grow out from there, I love this idea of automation to be able to identify and get to the heart of what you're trying to validate, what you're trying to approve. Because I also find that, you know, automation begets automation. You know, that that first step of writing the script, writing the, the particular checks for one particular workflow is, you know, generally a bit hard because you need to think through all the data that you need and all the steps you want to validate. But once you have that first step, it's so easy to modify it for the next thing and for the next thing until it reaches the point where, you know, it's it's almost trivial to it's it's actually easier to build something out into the automation than it is to actually go through it manually yourself. Right, because people become reliant on that sort of repeatability, right? So people are what we found at Central currently is that as we push to more automation, people became much more willing to wait the extra few days for us to build out the automated solution because they knew once it happened, every request after that was going to flow, right? So it's like, hey, you need to take two weeks to script this request? Absolutely, go for it because I know I've got 15 more right behind it, right? And if that means I'm going to be able to get stuff out fast, you know, the more the better. I wanted to go back to a point that you made too about the approval process and finding the person that can approve a particular task around the intentions and stuff. And I think that's so true. And I have seen in a few organizations, not all, but in a few organizations, that approval process also sort of diffuses the change requester's sense of responsibility, right? Because I'm giving this to someone else. Someone else is going to tell me that it's okay, right? So maybe I won't be as diligent because at the end of the day, I know there's someone else out there at the firing squad, squad with me. Whereas once we started automating some of these request processes, people were a lot more diligent about how they tested that because they were the ones pushing the button right? <laughs> they were the ones pushing the button at the end of the day. In conjunction with that, we also gave them the tools to be able to correct a lot of those problems. So not only are they on the hook for that, but they also have skin in the game if things go bad and they need to make a correction because now it's not, ah, I did something wrong. Ops, you know, take a look at it as well. You've got access to metrics. You've got access to the data dog. You've got access to logs, right? Put together a story. And then when you come to a when you come with a request to ops, it really should be a complete tale. 
hey, I did this thing. We noticed this alert fired. Here's the entry in the logs. We think we need to do X, Y, Z. Can you help us with that? That's a lot better than, hey, stuff be busted. <laughs> you know, we don't know what to do next. <laughs> yeah, getting those calls in the middle of the night, which are like, oh, can you help me problem solve this? You know, where you don't even have ownership over that area. Right. I, I guess speaking of calls, I really love the level of detail that you went into around alerts and that process. As someone that has been on call Effectively, you know, for for you know years, and been in the position where sometimes you you maintain a product that is you know effectively ninety percent being on call. That can be so draining, so demoralizing, and and cause so many issues. And so to not just focus on like, oh, what are the metrics? How do you approach it? But also, you know, you even go into the details of like how you track happiness and compensation and things like that. It's this holistic approach that I feel is so critical for people to do an on-call rotation successfully. Is is this just the result of a lot of being burnt or how did you kind of come to these best practices? It's a, it's a lot of being burnt, honestly. You know, I've been in ops my entire career. So I've been on call since I was, you know, 20 years old. My, my wife is still amazed at my ability to wake up and think, right. <laughs> and to be able to actually function. And, and it's really from years of that sort of conditioning. But at the same time, I know the cost than the toll that that can put on you, right? Like I've had to leave parties because I'm on call, right? I remember one Christmas party at Grubhub you know, there's eight of us at the Christmas party around a laptop, right? Like hacking away on a thing because, you know, just because we're at the Christmas party doesn't mean operation stops. So there's a lot of stress that goes with that. And I feel like the human component is just so often forgot. But then the, the other part of it is making sure that we're alerting for valuable things. And while, while that's a support aspect, it's also part of the human condition, because I think we've all had that alert where it's like, eh, that thing usually clears itself. It's pretty noisy. I'm just going to go ahead and snooze it, right? So what's the point of alerting right away if you know the default reaction is to wait five minutes and see if it clears? Why not have the computer do that? You're still not behind the eight ball, but now you haven't interrupted someone's dinner, right? Now you haven't had someone get nervous in a movie theater. <laughs> the idea that people are on call and they're chained to their home right? Because it's like, ah, I would love to do that, but I'm on call this week and I just have no idea how things are going to go. That, that, that's a terrible existence. And it becomes problematic in hiring. Every interview I've ever done, the question comes up, what's on call like? <laughs> right? Point blank, what's on call like? We've moved on. We've moved beyond, is there on call? It's assumed it's on call. Right. And everyone wants to know, like, what's it like? And your option is, you know, you can either fix your on-call process and be honest through that, or you can visibly lie and, and everyone sort of knows it because it goes, ah, it's, it's, not, it's not bad. It's, 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 not, it's not that bad, you know, yeah, uh, right? So now at that point, you're like, I've lost the candidate, right? <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> I, I'm curious, just to pause there for a moment and just to sort of, you know, hit it, you know, segue off a little bit. But what do you guys think? I, I've often thought that this whole on-call issue is actually one of the biggest impediments we have in technology to getting some, you know, to getting other people involved, to getting more people who might not want to follow a career in technology and move into something completely different because the on-call thing is to turn off. I'm just, I'd, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on that. Interestingly, I find 
a lot of the people that are outside of technology, like, are not aware of on-call being a, a component. And then I do think that there's certainly bad on-call, you know, as you were kind of alluding to with the hiring process, Jeff, like, that it is, you know, if you have bad on-call, that's one of the big things that can lead to churn whether with you know from an organization or, or from a team i've had team members that have, have just like got up and said i need to move somewhere else in the organization because i can't keep up with that on call right. and then you reach a point where you know a team of four people rotating you know week by week turns into a team of two people where one's the backup for the other and it never stops and so yeah i think having an unhealthy on-call rotation is is you know one of the worst things that you can have within a, a team yeah I, I agree too about it really being a people outside of tech being sort of oblivious to the on-call thing I think it's more of a hindrance for people in tech rotating into operations so when you're recruiting a developer and you're like hey I would love for you to come on the operation side we've got a lot of automation we're writing you know they're like but then I'm on call and it's like oh, yeah that's you know sort of a non-negotiable bit and and you end up losing that I also think it I think it impacts the age range of the folks that you're going to attract, right? Because, you know, our on-call at Centro is, is pretty mild, right? I've, I've gone an entire week and forgotten I was on-call. and was like, oh, oh, that's pretty cool. That peace of mind, you know, eliminates so many, even companies that I would consider potentially leaving for, right? Because that on that on-call experience is extremely valuable now that I'm, you know, older, I've got kids, right? So, I mean, we're in a pandemic, so I'm at home anyways. But prior to that, right, I would do this crazy thing called leave the house. And, you know, we would we would do these uh, weird gatherings where people would be inside having social activities. And to be able to do that with confidence, you know, th that is rewarding to me in a way that's difficult to fully, fully at uh, calculate a value for, right? And so much on call now is just a given that most companies don't even have a compensation plan for it. I think there's, you know, and this is going to be resource dependent, but having a factor of your on-call rotation being dedicated to increasing the quality of life of that on-call rotation, I feel is is so critical. The number of times where, you know, you, you know, when you're in a bad situation, you might be getting alerts, you finally get done with the week and like, oh, you just like, let me walk away from it. Like, I'm, I'm done for the next month or whatever that might be. But as a result, you know, the the people that are, are coming off from that that bad alerting situation are too burnt out to to fix things, you know, after the fact. And then the the people that aren't on on call rotation aren't feeling the pain to be able to to make those improvements. So if you're able to say, you know, in an ideal world to be solely focused on on-call and then like support and improvement of that rotation, or at least to be able to commit some degree of resources, 50% of your time to addressing alerts, understanding problems and automating fixes that can just improve the quality exponentially as rotation, each rotation then buys each person more time to improve the rotation further. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it was uh, Charity Majors from Honeycomb IO that I got this idea from. But, you know, she had talked about when the on part of the on call rotation was fixing those types of issues, right? Like, you know, freeing them up. So our policy is if you're on call, 
you can pull any ticket into the input queue that you you want to for that week, right? So I typically prioritize the queue. The input queue is locked and it's like, all right, this is what we're going through. But if you're on call and you want to pull something else into the queue and work on it, you have free reign to do that. And, you know, I, I totally agree. You want to deal with this while it's fresh in your mind. You want to deal with it, honestly, while it's painful, because depending on the size of your rotation, right, like you were saying, if I've got 10 person rotation, I might stomach this for a week, <laughs> right? Because it's going to be a little while before I have to deal with it again. But, you know, obviously that, that, that cycle time gets a lot worse, the smaller the rotation gets. So being able to empower your team to deal with these on-call issues quickly, I, I think is huge. And it's also another reason why the idea of developers also being in the on-call rotation makes sense too, because sometimes you're being paid for a thing that you can't correct on your own. Right. And again, skin in the game. If if a developer is getting that page, they are going to be much more responsive to the idea that that this is problematic. And then, you know, also not settling for band-aid solutions, right? We'll just restart the server, you know, every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Right. That that always comes back and haunts you eventually, always. And it may not even be you, it may be future you <laughs> that gets screwed and they're like, oh, what idiot set this up? And, you know, you're at your next job, like, oops, that was me. He <laughs> he. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresindevopspodcast.com slash Raygun. Yeah, there's always this trade-off or, or, I mean, started off with this focus on the trade-off of, do I automate something now or do I, you know, manually do it? And, and you can do that math of like, oh, it'll take me a week to automate this process or it's something that will take me an hour, a month for the, you know, and so like, oh, well, this is like two years worth of work by by spending my week doing this. And so, you know, early on in my career, there was a lot of doing that math. And I think you run into two major risks with that approach. First is what you just described, where the person leaves and, and does, you know, like we don't fully communicate what those responsibilities are. And then it's so easy for critical things to fall by the wayside, especially maintenance. You know, we, we had a, a guy who was manually deleting old data from the database because it was it was easier to, that, than setting up the retention policies for kind of the cascading tables. So they'd run the script to do it instead. 
And then as a result, you know, he left and it was three months later where we're like, oh, like, you know, if we didn't catch this, we'd be in violation of our, our retention policies. And then in other cases, especially when you're dealing with rotations, that the math changes when you're dealing with 10, you know, one tenth of that amount of work that you're only experiencing one tenth of that pain because it's split across your 10 person team. And, but from an organizational perspective, it's incredibly expensive to not automate those solutions. Yeah. You really have to look at it in terms of just like people hours generally, right? Not looking at it from the perspective of a single person. And, and that's where it is beneficial to have management that's sort of plugged in because they're looking at this, you know, much more holistically, but even, you know, every, every team has a leader, right? I don't remember what book it, it was I read, but I remember it was like, you can walk into a room and immediately determine who the leader is. And the leader may not be the manager or the highest ranking person, right? <laughs> but there is someone that is the leader in that room. So that person can also sort of drive these things as well. I think the other thing with automation, so our rule is basically, if we know that this is coming again, like we know, absolutely know we're going to do this again, we automate it right away. If we're unsure, we usually have like a three strikes rule, right? On the third time, it's like, all right, we need to automate this. But the, the, the interesting thing that I think is counterintuitive is we don't automate things that will run super infrequently. And the reason for that is the infrastructure is changing so frequently, right? That if we're not running this thing regularly, if we put all our eggs in that basket, the minute you say, all right, time to run the database failover script, right? <laughs> it, it instantly blows up and you're like, huh, that's the, uh, that's the site down alert. <laughs> Everything is hosed. So there are some things that we say, you know, while it seems like it would be beneficial to automate this, the execution is going to be infrequent enough where we're probably going to want some handholding and some real interpretation of each step as it makes its way through. Now, you could do different levels of automation. And I talk about this in the book. Sometimes your automation is like, I'm not going to do this from bang the bullets. I'm going to do one step and I'm going to verify with the user. And then I'm going to do another step and I'm going to verify. So it's like, okay, I'm going to automatically try to determine the, the transaction number I should be restarting this database server is. Is this right? Yes. Okay. Here are the IP address information that I've calculated that I'm going to put into the config file. Is this right? Okay. Now I think I'm going to restart the database server. Is this right? You could do that because then there's plenty of times for you to intervene and you don't have to think about all of the individual steps that you have to do, but it's not going to be like a run it and just walk away type process because just too much change happens. Yeah, that process of documenting the steps then also gives you that blueprint where if that third strike happens and you need to go in and start automating, you you have a clear like, oh, I, I know what I can translate to code. I know what I can't. Or even, you know, if someone, someone can jump in and say, I'm going to automate steps three through six of this process and like would still be the rest will be manual but like this will at least be easier for the next time around and there's so much value in that that i think it's discounted right people think well if the whole thing's not automated it's not worth it and it's like well you know who knows you could save 45 minutes in iteration just by automating steps one through four that's valuable right so you know take it in steps and like you said automation breeds automation so once you build confidence because a lot of times when you're starting you don't really have the confidence you're you're 
nervous about automating something from from beginning to end. So just bite off the chunk that you're comfortable with. And then once that proves successful, you'll expand, you'll expand. And I'm telling you, people get annoyed really fast because automation is like, it's a drug. <laughs> so once you get that first hit, right, you're like, oh man, I need, I need more of this, right? Like, I, I'm not going to do this manually. That's insane. <laughs> Something that back when I was doing more work with Excel spreadsheets and finance and a, a different life was that there's, uh, you know, the, the concept of macros in those applications where you can just start recording, you do what you're going to do, and then you stop recording. And then you can, you have something that you can reuse over and over again. And when I was first getting started with, you know, Excel and, and, and doing workloads there, you know, unless I had a very specific workflow that I wanted, I, you know, I wasn't using those automation tools. And then over time, it became this process of saying, oh, well, like I've done this two or three times inside of the spreadsheet. It's so quick and easy for me to hit those hotkeys. And, and now I can, you know, repeat that process. And so I think carrying that over into programming development operations, like it's, is a really critical path. Yeah, absolutely. And it also lays out though, how the, the space is changing, right? There, there, you know, I remember when I first started, one of the things that made me successful was I was one of the few people on the team that could code. And I think that's becoming more and more of a necessity. I think a lot of it stemmed from if you were in a Windows world, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for you to do that automation in the app space, right? That it just wasn't super friendly. Like you could do batch scripts and things like that, but you know, really there were a, there were a number of things that you could not do without clicking through the GUI. So that was a skill set that just never got built up and atrophied. And I think the Windows community is is experiencing that sort of drought now as they're starting to embrace more automation. So the things that you can do now in Windows were like unthinkable 20 years ago, but now you have this population that needs to sort of catch up in terms of skill sets. So, but I think it's an important point to, to, to highlight that the future is automation. Programming is going to be a necessity and the level at which you interact with the system is gonna to continue to get you know more and more abstracted over time. So it's super important that if you're out there and you're, you're learning, pick up a language, Python, PowerShell. Honestly, it doesn't matter. Yep. When we're hiring, we just say like, you know, I don't care what language you know. You know, I, as an engineer, I expect you to be able to learn technologies. I just need you to understand the core concepts. And it's, and it's really not, I think as automation folks, we tend to build smaller programs. So your, your coding expertise needs to be significantly lower than an application developer, because if you write a crummy 60 line script, it's still only 60 lines, right? <laughs> uh, so you can do a bunch of terrible practices and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, one other observation I would make is just based on, I think the last, what we've been talking about the last several minutes is that in organizations that really sort of are looking for opportunities for automation and looking for opportunities for building processes and consistency and all that. So I think it all goes hand to hand. You can't automate unless you've got a, you know, unless you've got a given process, a consistent process that you, that you follow. In those organizations, they tend to have the best security practices. When we think about secure configurations that are consistent across all systems, patching processes that, you know, are, are fairly consistent and fairly uh, streamlined, you know, a, a scanning process where we're constantly looking, are we, you know, are we making sure that any new, you know, systems, instances, whatever that are brought online, are they 
matching right the right configuration or et cetera, et cetera, right? All these different things that are security processes. Like the only organization that are really doing this well from a consistent standpoint are the ones who are also embracing all of these different, pro, you know, I don't know, practices, culture, whatever we want to you know, categorize them as. And I find, I, I personally find that really interesting. That it just all goes hand in hand, you know? And so, you know, Jeff, to your comment about those folks moving into this career and really, you know, taking on that idea of, learning to code and building that skill set. I think the other piece of it is understanding the security aspects of operations and systems, because I think that security is just going to be built into what we're, what you guys are doing on the operation side, because that's the only way it works. It can't be bolted on from a, you know, the outside security team telling you guys, Hey, you know, we ran these scans and here you go. <laughs> There's 1200 pages. Take a look at it and go fix stuff. Right. Yeah. So much of it is cultural um, too. Yeah. You guys have to, yeah. I mean, operations seem really to own it. No, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. You froze up on me for a second. Some of, so much of it is cultural as you were alluding to as well. Like, you know, the anecdote, I think I put this in the book. There's an anecdote that we always share is like, you know, try uh, submitting a piece of code without uh, automated testing at Google right? <laughs> like it's just not going to fly, right? Because you sort of build up these processes. And I completely agree, right? My one thing I remember taking away from a IT director when I was very early on was people process tools, right? In that order. Got to get the people on board. The people have to come up and define the process. Then you choose the tools to be able to map to that process. I think in technology, we tend to start with the tool and then sort of like back our way into process and it, and it just becomes like a, a complete mess. Yeah. But once you've sort of defined that process, those tools and that automation, and it becomes just a cultural thing, it raises the bar for everyone, right? Because it's like, you know, no, you, you can't start that instance up with worldwide read, you know, on port 22. <laughs> you can't do it. That's not a thing. We don't do that here. And with any luck, the system will even prevent you from doing it. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, in terms of this learning process, in terms of building all this out, is, is this that approachability and, and kind of setting the standards and something that, that really drew me to your writing, but, but also the talks that you've given, Jeff, is you have this way of talking about quite technical subject matter, but in a, a much more approachable and clear manner. How do you find kind of working through these technical topics in a way that, that you know, people can understand whether they have 20 years of experience or two years of experience? You know, I think a big part of it is understanding how much detail people need to understand what you're talking about, right? Like, you know, I can't remember who said it, but someone said, you know, all mental models are wrong, just some of them are useful, right? <laughs> so to me, it's like, you know, I can, I can go and I can give an explanation and I might be paving over a few nuanced details, but in reality, those nuanced details don't matter to anyone but the most ardent stickler for the technology. So I think it's really about, you know, sort of a figuring out exactly what it is that you're trying to convey and communicate, and then just breaking that down into a, you know, analogies are always great, metaphors are always great, but just figuring out the parts that people really need to understand to get the rest of the talk. And, you know, I, I think I've been successful in that just because I like to explain things, especially to people that aren't technical, because in reality, like there are so many things that we feel are like beyond knowing, right? Whereas if you put a little bit of energy into it, it's like, okay, 
I can understand the details of this. And most people work at this sort of abstract level anyways. All right. So, you know, when I spend time working at my computer, there is probably 30% of what's happening that I actually truly understand in complete detail. The rest is like a magic abstracted forest. And I only need to dive in when the abstraction breaks or something isn't working, right? So then it's like, okay, now I need to spin up. And because I understand the concepts, I can dig deep, understand, and then pop back up. It's one of the ways that I learn like new technology is, all right, I learn a little bit about, you know, MySQL, let's say, right? And then it's like, okay, MySQL is an implementation of a relational database. Let me understand like the core concept of relational databases, regardless of the technology, right? And then when I need to learn Postgres, I know that I need to find a transaction log, right? I know that there is some concept of a buffer pool where, you know, pages are written in memory and then flush this. Like all these patterns and concepts exist and I can make that translation easy. So, you know, I I think sort of like being able to move up and down those layers of abstraction helps being able to communicate that to non-technical people. And then, you know, the other thing is just like, you know, not not to have ego around it, right? (laughs) For sure. No, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, it it is something where I think that that idea of how people specialize, like what engages them, what clicks with their mental model can create cases where you're, you know, it's very easy to fall into a rhythm of talking in what makes sense to you rather than focusing on what would make sense to your audience. And that makes such a big difference in communicating effectively. Yeah. And dude, I'm so glad you mentioned specialization because that is something that I think, particularly in the ops side, I think that is something that we sort of over glorify or, or have outsized expectations of people and their ability to specialize in 50 different things. I know as when I was coming up in ops, I always had this inferiority complex around developers because they were coders. I was still learning to code, but naturally because they're a developer, they know everything I know, plus they can code, right? So then to meet a developer and, and he has no idea how DNS works, I'm like, but you're, you're a programmer. How do you not know how DNS works? And that was my, my first realizing like, oh, these are different specialties, right? And people might be experts in one thing, but totally noobs in another. Again, because of that layer of abstraction, right? I don't need to know the details of that. I know that when I type in google.com on my browser, it takes me to where I need to be. So I never dug into that. So, you know, understanding that, you know, your specialization breeds you knowledge that other people might not have also makes it a bit more comfortable teaching because you can, you feel like, oh, if I'm teaching this, I have to have something profound to teach because everyone knows this. Everyone doesn't know it, right? So being able to recognize your specialization and the knowledge that you have that other people might not have is also incredibly powering, especially in this whole DevOps thing when you're working with developers or you're working with ops folks, right? You can feel comfortable coming to the table with that level of expertise and saying like, hey, I don't know what you know, and you don't know what I know. So together, we're going to be able to figure this thing out, and it's going to be amazing, as opposed to thinking like, oh, man, if I if I say this, they're going to know that I'm a fraud and uh, that I, I don't know all this stuff. It's easy to forget that we're spending, you know, thousands of hours each year, like learning and iterating and solving problems. And while, you know, we're in a peer group that is focused on the same problems as us, as you start to find opportunities to talk, you know, even operations person to operations person, we're in a position where we have new perspectives, we've had specific experiences, and the process of sharing that is is so insightful, Or, or even just 
cathartic experience where we can you know really relate to one another right it's like you know pick anything you do in technology anything at all and somewhere there is someone who does that one thing <laughs> as their complete job with total specialization right anything any one thing could be a complete job in and of itself i always say i judge your expertise on a technology based on how much you hate it <laughs> <laughs> The more you hate it, I'm like, yeah, they're a pro. They know they know their stuff <laughs> because it's it's impossible <laughs> to know something that intimately and not be absolutely enraged. Fantastic, excellent. Were there any other topics you guys wanted to to touch on, or should we hop over to to picks? Yeah. No, I think we you know I think we hit the gamut there. It's a good awesome. good yeah. conversation. It's great. It's a great conversation. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. For our listeners that are new, Pix is a part of the show where we go and talk about things that are really of interest to us, whether that be technical or non-technical, a TV show, a video game, or or you know, a whole suite of tools that, that we've been using and, and are really passionate about. So to, to kick things off, Jeff Smith, uh, what'd you have for us today? Yeah, I went a little crazy with my picks. I wasn't sure how many people normally have. So I was like, I'm just going to go for the gusto, do a little bit of everything. So first is the uh, model library and written in Python. And Motto is a library that allows you to mock out AWS services for unit testing. Um, so, you know, doing more infrastructure stuff, we're doing a big rewrite of a bunch of our code and we want, you know, more infrastructure unit tests. So being able to mock out an EC2 instance, being able to create a EC2 subnet or a VPC subnet, all of that, it's extremely powerful to be able to really sort of exercise code. So I, I would highly recommend that people check out the model library. They've got most of the core endpoints done and just it, it's just a great resource. So check that out. And I guess the links will be in the show notes. Another one, a book, Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal, and he goes into the difficulty that they had fighting Al-Qaeda and how their sort of hierarchical nature in his branch of the military uh, became a hindrance as they were trying to deal with this very complex, highly adaptable network of terrorists and how despite them being, despite the military, our military being, you know, an outsized overmatch for those guys, right? Better technology, better resources, better capabilities. They still could not keep up with this ragtag group of terrorists. And it talks about, you know, the nature of complex systems, how we have to sort of change and adapt to be sort of resilient to those things. So while it's not directly about DevOps, you'll definitely get the correlation within the first like chapter or two. So that was a great book. How to Measure Anything was another great book by uh, Douglas Hubbard. He has a very, very, you know, mathematical approach to putting measurements and numbers behind things. He's got this philosophy where he's like, you know, we should be measuring things in confidence intervals. And then based on that, so we say, oh, I've got a 60% confidence interval that the number, that the budget will between be between 50,000 and 600,000, right? And he says, those, those sorts of ranges are much more useful because not only is it more realistic, right? Because if I gave you a flat number for a budget, right, I have to be pretty accurate to nail that. But if I give you the range, not only is it better from a planning perspective, but it also is an a easy measure of the uncertainty that I have. So if I tell you, you know, hey, we're going to go out to dinner, how much do you think it's going to be? 
well, you know, you have no idea. So you don't know my taste. You don't know what kind of restaurant I'm going to pick. So you make say ah, between $15 and $20,000. But the minute I say, I'm going to take you out to dinner, we're going to McDonald's. Now suddenly the range is much tighter because you have greater confidence in the estimate. So he sort of uses that philosophy to be able to do that with a bunch of things. He also wrote a security book about risk management and doing that same approach there. So that was another great one. And then my last one was such a gem, a TV show called The Bureau out of France. It is it is subtitled. I think it's on Sundance now and on Amazon Prime, at least season one. It is Homeland meets The Wire. It is about a French agent the DG, working for the DGSC, the uh, equivalent of the CIA here in America. And this sort of like twisted scenario he gets in when he's trying to save the love of his life that he met while he was undercover in Syria and just sort of the lengths that he has to go through. The spy craft in this is like amazing and incredibly accurate from all accounts that I've read. The characters are just well-developed, well-written. The series is over. It was five seasons, 10 episodes a season. So in the pandemic, you can get through it pretty quickly. But just, just all around good television. And if you're American, this will be interesting because you see it from a French perspective and you see relationships throughout the world through a different lens, right? So you 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 go to Iran, right? You go to Iraq and you get to experience these countries through the views of the French, which is radically different than what we're accustomed to seeing in America. So, you know, when they have a scene in Tehran, you're like, oh, that could have been Chicago, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not how I visioned it because that's not how it's presented to us in American media. But it's just all around a, a super entertaining show. So those are my four picks. It's fascinating. It's definitely one for the list. Yeah, I, I, I've done similar with a few shows in uh, Canada and England, but seeing, you know, also those those places that are, are speaking a different language definitely are rare to see those same perspectives. Uh, and man, you feel like a Luddite because these guys are switching between French and Farsi and then English and you're just like oh man (laughs) uh, I am just slacking (laughs) awesome Jeff how about you any picks for us this week yeah so I've just got got one pick this week so I've been playing with a new editor Scrivener I don't know if you guys have uh, heard of this but yep Jeff has so uh, it makes sense you just wrote a book right so (laughs) so it's I I write a lot of content and uh, it's just it's amazing how inexpensive it is compared to like word, and yet how powerful it is for building a project. You know, when you think about like something you're writing as a project and the research that might go into it and how you want to organize it and all this. So it's just something I'm just now getting getting into. But wow, it is so amazing in terms of just, you know, its capabilities for helping you to sort of not just write, but actually make things pretty, but actually how to like go through the process of getting your ideas, organizing them, writing them, doing your research and sort of combining it together and moving things around and, and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, if anybody does a lot of content generation in terms of like, you know, written word, Scrivener is a great, great software package to look at, a great editor to look at. This is the first time hearing of it. This I'm looking at the site. I really like how it kind of combines the process of outlining and researching within, you know, the writing process. And it's great to be able to write like different, you know, like if you're doing fiction stuff, right, to be able to move stuff around and to be able to just focus on like, okay, I'm going to write this scene here 
and it's a single page that you can drag and drop. It's uh, yeah, it's it's really cool. Very cool. I'll have to check it out in my own writing. So as on my end, I'm coming in today with two picks. So first, I've been doing a bit more uh, front end development, less application focused, but kind of those quick tools, those proof of concepts. Um, and so one of the things that I really enjoy doing is actually using online IDEs for that. For years, you know, I started off like learning front end code using JS Fiddle, but for years I've been using CodePen just because it's a, a, a nice clean editor, lets you be able to work in all of your different files and be able to see that accessibly. But a problem that I ran into over the past couple of years has just been as so many development, so much development is based on, you know, external libraries and complete packages that are managed through, you know, Node Package Manager, that's where you start to see some gaps. And so I've recently transitioned to using Code Sandbox, which I'll put a link to, and that gives you that full, complete environment in an online editor where you can go in bring in whatever packages you need, have that direct accessibility, and really get a proof of concept, a small project up and running really quickly. You know, I'm, I'm not doing dedicated front-end development, but sometimes I need to communicate something to a resource, a contractor, and, and that just makes it a really effective tool to be able to do so. The other pick, so one of my favorite authors is Douglas Adams, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is an incredible series, but a bit lesser known is his other book series, uh, Dirk Gently, which is about a detective who his approach is effectively to, to kind of walk around doing things and that the answers to the case will come to him. And so they're wild and wacky. And, you know, a few years ago, they actually made two seasons of a TV show uh, starring Elijah Wood. And it's this fascinating combination of being like funny weird british humor but also very dark parts of it remind me of uh this other canadian tv show orphan black which had a similar mix of dark serious like action and also like you know good dark comedy um i, I highly recommend checking out the show it's on hulu um re really great show dark gently and, awesome uh, yeah. So and I think with, with these picks, that, that ends our show for the week. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a really great conversation. Yeah, great. I really had a good time. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. It's been great you know, putting on the show for you guys. And, and we'll catch you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.